0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. This is episode 174. We are back to regularly scheduled tennis programming. Last time we came to you, we did a bit of a off-the-beaten-path, road-less-traveled tennis episode.
1: Yeah, it's been a minute since we've covered actual tennis that's happening now.
0: That was the U.S. Open, or U.S. Open wrap. Yeah. Was our last
1: full active tennis
0: episode. And thanks to y'all, it's our most downloaded episode ever. Wow. Yeah. Look at
1: that. I know. That's and, pretty cool. And you know what I got to say? I haven't really missed live tennis that much.
0: <laughs> Sometimes I begin to <laughs> wonder if you if I'm are just here to... Up, to the, up to the task yeah. of this position that you're in. Like I'm
1: just here to hear my own voice. Yeah. Um...
0: Maybe we need to revisit that in the off-season. <laughs> I mean, Maybe I'll go on Indeed.com and post a job description. Right.
1: It doesn't pay. Fair <laughs> warning.
0: So you kind of get what you pay for. A lot has happened. The Asian swing has ended, correct? Has it? Or it's very close to has, to being done, at the very least. Mm. A lot of stuff's happened. Let's start this week with the uh, the spicy results from this week. I think there was some spicy stuff, but... Sp- <laughs> Well, Coco Golf, with a little bit of luck and a lot of bit of talent, won her first title of her career at 15 years old. I want to say
1: this is wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Call Me Coco won, well, she reached her first WTA quarterfinal, first semifinal, first final, her first title, and her first top 10 win over Kiki Burtons. In straight sets? Yeah. Well, what's going on there? Kiki Burtons, who's playing in her 57th event this year. Wow. Amazingly. Of all the but things still,
0: that I will be happy... Still has not qualified for Shenzhen. Of all the things that I will be happy to put to rest in 2019, <laughs> when that calendar turns over, mm-hmm. is your favorite topic from it's, this it's year. It's not going to
1: end because by February she'll be playing in number 8 or 9 already. Lord.
0: <laughs> she gets into the tournament and Linz only as a lucky loser. Eventually beating Kiki Burtons, you said, you had mentioned previously, a top 10 player, her first top 10 win of her career. Beating Petkovic in the semifinals, a resurgent Petkovic, and then Ostapenko, who's shown
1: signs of life in the last couple months she made the final. She's got Marion Bartoli as her coach at the moment, and Ostapenko played a great second set, was really firing like we know she can. But it's just like the accuracy is not there on a consistent enough basis to make it happen lately. But I mean, she's getting to finals; like it, it has to be a good sign. And she was even fairly gracious in the the trophy ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a thing, you know. That is a for thing. Her.
0: That is a thing for Yelena. It surely is. I'm not sure. Most of us thought we'd see Coco again for the rest of the year. That was kind of up in the air. Mm. Boy, did she make the most of her opportunity. This this is a story of her year. She's had limited opportunities on the WTA Tour. And for the most part, she's taken those opportunities and made them count. Wimbledon, US Open, and then now winning her first WTA tournament. She's up inside the top 75. I want to say she's going to be ranked number 70 after this tournament. So she has nothing to worry about with respect to needing wild cards to get into the big tournaments mm-hmm. next year. Did this win change anything as far as your outlook for her career or the way you view Coco Goff at this stage in her career? Were you surprised by it?
1: Uh yeah, yeah, I was surprised that she won a title this soon, but it no, it doesn't really change much. I think the the outlook was already extremely bright regardless of if she even played in Linz, but her physicality is obviously still developing, like her game is going to improve, but what's really impressive and what sets her apart from most teenagers is the mental side, that she just seems ready to go out there and win. It's it's uncanny, really.
0: On the men's side, in Shanghai this week, we had a moment where folks, I suppose, could be inclined to mark it as a breakthrough moment in men's tennis, when these next Jenners plus one or two years have this big breakout day Mm -hmm. against Novak and Roger. Yeah.
1: Had this happened at, you know, maybe a more important tournament, I would view it differently and at a different time in the season. But hey, it still happened. We had the youngest group of semifinalists, I think, in over a decade on the ATP Tour. The oldest semifinalist was 23, Medvedev.
0: Those semi-finalists were Medvedev and Zverev. They made the final. And then in this, the other two that lost in the semis were Berrettini and Tsitsipas.
1: Right. So Tsitsipas beat Djokovic in the quarterfinals. He has a win against Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal this year. Nadal on clay. And Federer and Djokovic both on hard courts. He's already made the World Tour finals in London in, I think, the number six spot. Like this kid's year just keeps getting better and better.
0: Especially when it it looked at a a certain point he had plateaued and that maybe Mm. he would struggle through the rest of the season. We saw him a while back leading into the U.S. Open talking about how he was tired, which naturally he should be tired (laughs) (laughs) given all that he's played for the first time this year. Mm. And he's managed to regroup, reset, and come again. This is a sixth straight ATP final that Medvedev has made, winning three of those titles. He began in Washington losing to Kyrgios, went on to Canada, lost to Rafa badly in the final, won Cincinnati, lost to Rafa at the US Open, won St. Petersburg, and then now winning Shanghai. This dude is for real.
1: Yeah, and realistically he should have been seriously exhausted at many of those stretches right he seemed to be totally wiped out in Montreal then goes to Cincinnati the next week and wins
0: goes down two sets to love against Nadal in a Grand Slam final pushes him deep into a fifth set didn't see that coming
1: (laughs) right and uh, he's gonna play again next week after winning this week (laughs) that might be part of part of his uh, genius I don't know but it seems like You know, Tsitsipas right now is, it's just a bad matchup for him. And he seems that he's learning to accept that and knows that he needs to be more patient and deal with what he views as kind of like an annoying game to play. And that someday he will beat Medvedev.
0: Because at this point, the head-to-head is what?
1: Five and zero.
0: And this is the matchup that brought us that infamous, man, you better shut your fuck up, okay?
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And I think Tsitsipas called him a bullshit Russian.
1: Well, that's what Medvedev said, he said.
0: Allegedly,
1: yes. (laughs) And uh, Zverev, I think, led Medvedev for nothing in their head-to-head before this match. But it had been a while since they played.
0: We've talked a lot in this year about Zverev's struggles. It's It's been quite the arduous run for him in 2019. It seems that his performance at the Labour Cup may have turned the tide. God,
1: I just can't... May have. I cannot listen to this narrative ever again. If
0: that is a narrative you want to buy into, it's an easy one. It's there. He delivered the Labour Cup and
1: now (laughs) he he made the final in Shanghai. I mean... Like, it's October. The season's going to be over in a few weeks. You can't wait for Labour Cup every year to give you that inspiration. It's not like he's had an an
0: abhorrent year. No,
1: no, but for him, this is a clear backslide. You know, it's it has to be seen as a disappointing season for him.
0: So I mentioned that day where Zverev beats Federer and Tsitsipas beats Djokovic. There was some drama that day. Oh, Care to, care to walk us through it?
1: Well, Zverev beat Daddy, and Daddy was just grumpy as hell throughout that whole match. And he did play kind of a, a heroic second set tiebreak. But Zverev was the much better player on the day, overall. Roger saved five... Get to the
0: drama, man. I want the drama.
1: So in the third set, Roger sort of framed this ball out of frustration and sort of lightly tapped it out of the court. And he got a code violation, and that was his second, so it was a point penalty. (laughs) And he was not having it. He said it was with the frame and then sarcastically said, was that too much for you? Ha <laughs> ha And the ump was like, well, it went out of court, so that's the rule. I was like, I don't know what it, wh- why it makes a difference if it was with the frame or not. Uh, Roger was being a little bit difficult there.
0: Well, his issue was, was I being aggressive? Was it an aggressive swat? Mm-hmm. He, he was saying it was like a little gentle thing, like, come on, dude. There was no malintent. What's the deal here? Yeah. And when you watch it, it really looks like nothing. It doesn't even look like he hit it far enough to get past the chair empire. Like, how small is this court? Mm.
1: <laughs> it was a weird thing to call, I agree. But for Roger and his fans to be, like, seriously mad about it is just is way too much for me.
0: Okay. Federer was not
1: happy in press afterward. <laughs> very displeased. Oh, very, very upset. Again. You know, he was obviously asked to comment on this dramatic moment in the third set and then he told Stuart Fraser what so you can you can tweet something about it get some clicks (laughs) (laughs) like dude you have been out here for a long time you know how it works as someone who has been the beneficiary of decades of mostly glowing press maybe you can like get over it this time Hmm. what you disagree I mean, mean, he was frustrated he lost a match. I don't blame him for being annoyed or being snippy at all. It's just like, I get why Roger is frustrated. I
0: have no issues with Roger being snippy to a reporter. I have issues with the ways in which he's allowed to be snippy and other people aren't. And the ways in which his words and behavior is... What's the big deal when another person... Who happens to be 50 shades darker. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yes, because when that person does it, it's uh, it unleashes an entire commentary about that person's class, mm-hmm. you know.
0: And so when you consider as well that Federer was one who opined about Serena's behavior at the U.S. Open final and the impropriety of it, I, I would just have liked a little bit more solidarity <laughs> in terms of... <laughs> You know, we're allowed to not be perfect in these moments. Mm -hmm. Even if we use perfect as part of our branding Mm -hmm. with the RF, you know, let's just spread that perfection around a little bit more.
1: Okay, you keep wishing.
0: Mm. It's really not that big of a deal. It's the end of the season. How many people are actually paying full attention to this?
1: Well, you're going to get a call from the Shanghai Rolex Masters. (laughs) How dare you? I'm
0: just saying, the never has it been put in more or better relief for me than it has this year. How arduous and long and oppressive the tennis season is.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And at this point, like, to have the energy to get mad about Stan Wars is just too much to ask, at least
0: for me. I get the. The desire to not frame the the slams as the four biggest moments of the year, as the most important moments of the year, necessarily denigrating the regular tour events. The year is January to November. Some tournaments have to be played in late September, October. Mm-hmm. I get it. Like It's unfair to them to not have eyes on them because the U.S. Open has already ended. But at the same time, it's still a lot.
1: Right. Regardless, this this Shanghai Masters was a pretty cool moment, seeing these guys in their young 20s all making the semifinals, giving you an idea of maybe what the next generation of champions is going to look like whenever that does happen. And now it seems that the unexpected Medvedev is asserting himself as the leader, uh, as really the most likely next slam champion, if you were to pick out of that group.
0: Oh, well, I, I think he's right there with Dominic Team. I think mm. team will get to it, he won a tournament uh, in this Asian Swing as well, seems to have put his viral illness behind him.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He seems to have taken another step forward this year.
1: He definitely has, I agree. He won a big hardcore title at Indian Wells, another Roland Garros final, mm. and overcoming this this sort of a troubling viral illness, like in the late summer and winning a title in Asia, getting to the quarterfinals, losing to Berrettini, like, these are all good signs. But I do I do wonder like if he's going to win a slam, it'll probably be Roland Garros first, and that means he would have to beat Rafa or Rafa doesn't make it. And that's a like that's a big if.
0: I don't know if that's true. He won Indian Wells. Like he pushed Rafa to five sets at the US Open last year. Alright. It the point is he he has established himself as somebody who can play at a calibre and a level just below those top guys mm-hmm. now. I yeah. think he and Medvedev are the two that are are standouts, but at the same time, we now have in the top 10, five guys who are seriously good.
1: Yeah, you I have mean
0: Dominic team, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Zverev, and Beretti- No, and uh, Hachanov, and then you have Berrettini just outside the top ten. So mm-hmm. there are six guys who this year, save for Zverev, unless you want to consider Labor Cup. All those guys have done something truly worthwhile this year.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe
0: not so much Hachanov this
1: year. But we've seen his pedigree. Well, yeah. Zverev won the World Tour Finals last year, obviously. We know he can win big tournaments. He has all these Masters titles under his belt. Tsitsipas has beaten the big three this year. So I think if you're looking to the next generation, they are starting to raise their hands. And it's happening in a really different way than it is on the WTA Tour because... On the women's side, you see a bunch of different winning, women winning tournaments all the time. Big tournaments, too. And it'll be interesting to see like where, where the allegiances lie when these players become the top players. We've lived a very, very long generation with the big three. So like, where's everyone going to go? When
0: Alexander Zverev beat Roger Federer in Shanghai, he uh, exclaimed, It's my fucking time much like he did it's my fucking court yes and it turns out it has been neither his time nor court oh wow when he has Mm -hmm. made those declarations no
1: he meant it it was my time today he meant like that very moment you know it's a look it's so dramatic (laughs) you really just have to laugh like it's it's just kind of humorous it's so over the top what a moment since we've been away for so long, we've missed really about four or five weeks of actual tournament results that we haven't talked about here. We're not going to hit all of them, but just to to catch up. Don't say the name. One that I really would like to talk about is in Mets, very reliably, this young man wins French 250s, just mm-hmm. collects them.
0: This not-so-young man anymore who's been mm-hmm. banned from the body serve podcast and enshrined in the by, body serve hall of shame by you and who still has four and a half months left of time to serve before the ban is lifted wow
1: well we won't say who it is but it's an 18 time titleist on the atp one mets defeating bedenet that's and, it and looking good while doing it that's
0: it 18 yes 17 of them 250s Sh- 15 of them Shut in france up. you know he won
1: toronto <laughs> In St. Petersburg, Medvedev beat Chorich. A good result for Chorich
0: there because he had been struggling for a little bit. Yes,
1: really struggling with injuries this year. In Chengdu, Pablo Carreño Busta, who also did not have a good year at all, beat Bublik in the final. Diemenauer, who is resurgent, beat Manorino in Zhuhai. And as we said, Dominic Team won a title, not just any title, was the 500 in Beijing, beating Tsitsipas. And there was another great lineup of semifinalists in Beijing as well, Tsitsipas and Zverev, who also made the semis in Shanghai, Team and Hachanov.
0: In Tokyo, Novak Djokovic reemerged from his post-U.S. Open injury shadow.
1: Mm-hmm. Whatever he did, whatever kind of therapy they did on that shoulder worked, because he worked his way through that draw very easily. A 500-level tournament in Tokyo, he first v- time he'd ever played that tournament. Mm-hmm. He beat his frequent whipping boys, David Goffin and Luka Pui, and then John Millman in the final, who uh, he's really turned around a year that was pretty disappointing overall. The week before making the final in Tokyo, he won the Kaohsiung Challenger.
0: It must be, I mean, Djokovic didn't go super deep in Shanghai, but I would say overall his output since coming back from this injury has to be heartening. For I would think so. For his fans. Yeah. Considering you didn't really know what he would look like. Or if he would show up at all. If he would take the rest of the year off. Mm-hmm. He's back. He looked good and hard. He went out to a Tsitsipas who was feeling himself.
1: Right. And we do now know for certain that Rafa Nadal will overtake the year or the number one ranking early November. Because of the points that Djokovic lost in Shanghai. The year end is still a toss-up, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, Djokovic has to perform extremely well for the rest of the year.
0: I had speculated that by the end of the Australian Open, that it was likely that Nadal would return to number one. Mm-hmm. This result kind of hastened that right. eventuality. And so he will, due to the nature of the way the ATP points fall off at the end of the year... The World Tour Finals and the Paris points will fall off the same week. And so even if Djokovic wins Paris, he still will mm. have the World Tour Finals off his his ledger that same week. And so the following week, Nadal will, will become right. number one.
1: And Paris is officially the last event on the ATP calendar. And it's the last chance to gain any points to qualify for the World Tour Finals. Yeah.
0: So then it becomes a matter of how much winning does each guy do at the NITO Finals. If Nadal goes deep in Paris, wins three or four matches in the World Tour Finals, he's year and number one, at which point all three of Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer will have been year and number one five times. Wow. One behind, I believe, Jimmy Connors at number six for the all-time lead. Don't quote me on that. Sampras and Connors are there somewhere. One mm. of them has six, and they're <laughs> in the mix somewhere. But the point is, they'll all be tied, and one of them will have the chance to be the leader of that pack and have that feather in their cap.
1: Mm. Uh, Andy Murray is back, playing these big tournaments. He Mm. made the quarterfinals in Beijing, beat Berrettini, which these days is no small task, Cam Nori, and then lost a team who was the eventual champ in Beijing.
0: That was a big win against Berrettini, and he did it in straight sets.
1: Mm -hmm. In two tiebreaks, I think, right?
0: He atoned for his earlier... Loss in his comeback against Tennis Sangren.
1: Yeah, I see you didn't cancel him for that.
0: It's Andy Mori. <laughs> Andy Mori has been out here at every turn being a decent human being.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, we've seen all these video clips of him pushing back against reporters, people who ask him questions about who's the last person to do this, blah, blah, blah. How does it feel to be the first Brit to do this, da da da? And it's always, well, uh not the the last american do it was actually serena williams the williams sisters they've mm-hmm. done it and the last one i saw was years ago Babyface andy murray being asked when who was the last brit to win wimbledon and he goes uh and like not even having to think about it he's like virginia wade And he's like oh you know I, I i like what you did there but um in terms of the last man he's like well obviously the last man to win was fred perry in 1936
1: <laughs> right it's always just so natural with Andy. Like, it's not even that he's trying to make a point. It's just his knee jerk yeah. is to actually give credit. And I, I,
0: when I watched this last one about Virginia Wade, it's not and it's not as easy as people would think. Like, this is how the, <laughs> socialization of fuckery works, right? Oh, is that like, a
1: sociological term?
0: It is. Yeah, we're conditioned to view the world through. A male-centric lens,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so I, I think to myself, like if I'm if I'm Andy Murray, a young tennis player at that point, I guarantee you the majority of people, maybe myself included, would have answered Fred Perry, and not because mm-hmm. they don't think women's tennis is great.
1: Well, because you know what the interviewer is getting. Yes, at, right. You do. You know what the question is intended to. It's so elicit.
0: easy to be caught unawares. Because that's just the conditioning,
1: right? Mm. And it, it is impressive. That he never gets tripped up. Never gets tripped up. <laughs> so Andy, after that good run in Beijing, gets to Shanghai, beats Londero, plays Fabio Fognini. And you know what? This is like a return to form. Mm-hmm. Grouchy Andy is back. And it is giving me life.
0: Listen, the last couple of weeks have just been so good and yet so bad. In highlighting just how much of an asshole Fabio Funini is. <laughs> we should never forget. No. We should never forget. And Andy Murray put him in his place because he was acting a damn fool.
1: So Andy was pissed because Fabio was yelling out while Andy was trying to hit a volley. And so Andy marches over to Fergus Murphy, the chair umpire, and says, Are you hearing this? Like, did you not see what just happened? And Fergus, man, he's he's not gone on a great run lately. Fergus basically got gored by Nick Kyrgios at Cincinnati, just run roughshod over, lost total control of that match, obviously. And this time, Andy Murray had to basically litigate what happened that was obviously a hindrance. So Fabio's mouth just never stops. We so the w-
0: video is on Andy talking to Fergus, and you can hear that... <laughs> off to the side... And so Andy's talking, and then he just turned his head to, the, to his left. Shut up. <laughs> shut up. How does he do it?
1: Shut up. Is that okay? Is that, yeah. that, that's more like, shut up. I don't know what that accent is, but... Shut up. That, it's that's, en- that's enough. That's not it's getting en- any closer? Enough.
0: Shut enough. up. Shut up. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> you give it a go. I'm going to delete most of that. You, you give it a go. What is it more like? Shut up. Yeah, see, that's it. Andy's attitude is back. And he even said after the match, you know, I didn't want to go there. Like, I didn't I didn't want to act like that. But I felt like I had to stand up for myself in that moment. And I'm like, Andy, when have you not stood up for yourself?
0: Funini's like a fly that you cannot he swat. He is a mosquito. You right? cannot swat him. Ugh. I'm, I'll never forget on a VH1 behind the music or something, Cher was being interviewed. It was her own thing. Her own behind the music. And she said, you know, somebody once said, you know, if there was a nuclear war, only two things would survive, Cher and cockroaches. Or cockroaches and Cher. <laughs> <laughs> it would be cockroaches, Cher, and Fabio Fonini, Because he just cannot get rid of him. More his mouth.
1: Ugh. On the women's side, Sam Stozer reached the final in Guangzhou, losing to Sofia Kennan. In Seoul, uh, Muhova defeated Lynette for the final. Sabalenka kind of surprisingly, defended her title in Wuhan.
0: That's a big win for her.
1: Yeah. Beating Alison Risk in the final, who is continuing a a remarkable year for her. And in Tashkent, Van Oytvenk. Oh, I did it this time. You did. That was the first time. Beat Sarana Kirstea in the final.
0: See, you just had to get out of your head. Yes. But man, Alison Risk, she's up to a career high number 20. She's a top 20 player at the age of 29. And I don't think many people would have seen this coming for her. No, She was known as a grass court specialist for a long time in her career. And what we've seen is this business of self-belief that you get from having a good result outside of your usual comfort zone. And she's just been able to run with it.
1: Mm -hmm. Naomi Osaka is really the story of the WTA Asia swing, winning two titles, her fourth and fifth. So she won the Japan title in Osaka, her namesake, followed it up with a huge title in Beijing. And this is shortly after parting with her coach, Jermaine Jenkins. She's been traveling with her dad as her coach, which seems to be going well as an interim solution. They're getting along well, and she she is feeling herself.
0: Spare thought for Jermaine Jenkins, because while they may not have had success together that either would have wanted, there were signs, Naomi in... Toronto looked good. Naomi and Cincinnati looked good before the knee injury. She looked good in New York as well, despite that. You don't know how much this success could have happened sooner and to save Jermaine's job had it not well, been for that. That's speculation.
1: Right. Who knows what was going on behind the scenes. Um, the- Jermaine actually worked with Coco Golf earlier in the year as well. So he's worked with some huge players who've had successes this year. But unfortunately, a lot of that success happened after their, their relationship officially ended.
0: Mm-hmm. And for Naomi, that's her second coach this year. Well, her dad is now her third coach because she was mm. with Sasha. It's crazy that the Australian Open that she won was just January this year. That yeah. feels like two years ago. Yeah. Naomi and Sasha broke up at the start of the year. She eventually hired Jermaine. That didn't last. She's with her dad now as the coach. And she's had this, this success She's got a lot of stuff going on in her life. It's confirmed that she's in a relationship with uh this Cor- young rapper Corday. JB Corbet. What? Corday. <laughs>
1: I can't remember his name. I know He's Corday is it. Yeah. Corday um, the
0: the two initials are part of the, the Y group. YBN? Yes, YBN Corbey I think. I think that the YBN is the, the Oh, it's a group? Yeah, it's a group of rappers. It's a collective. It's a rapper collective. So he belongs to the YBN Rep rap collective uh-huh. and they're like like Wu-Tang. Yeah, they are like 10 to 15 other ones who have like y- really? like YBN treetop, you know, like all these different YBN Tree to- affiliations. did you make that up? I did,
1: yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Um he is on HER's new full-length album. Oh, he is. Yeah. It's the first time I've actually I've seen him uh professionally because I didn't I wasn't aware of him before the Naomi connection. And she's out here buying 6 million dollar houses in yes, Los Angeles. D- it's that Taylor Swift strategy. Real estate. When you start to make money, you buy real
0: estate, man. So she's out here doing big things and you know that winning on on Asian soil is a big deal for her, not just because people question her identity all the time. But also, from a bank perspective, yeah. like you make a lot of bank if, as the top tennis player in all of Asia, you're able to win Asian tennis tournaments. Yeah. That's just a fact. And
1: you go to your home country and you win. Facts
0: are facts. You win the tournament that is in the town that has your last name. That's a fact <laughs> that you win a lot of money. Uh-huh.
1: She won that tournament without dropping a set. She beat Pavlyuchenkov in the final. In Beijing, man, she snapped a very famous win streak that we have been talking about for a lot of this year despite that person not playing for several months out of that win streak it's 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 uh (laughs) this sounds so shady it sounds very petty but it we've got to stop talking about this win streak uh, it needed of to completed end. of completed matches because there were retirements there were injury breaks that lasted the entire clay and grass season like just stop the nonsense it
0: needed to end because it had us out here being super petty and taking away in effect from bianca's right. wild achievements because they're incredible
1: and be- it really is a media concoction mm-hmm. right like we're look obviously they're looking for new angles the people who promote the sport are looking for exciting new ways to talk about it totally get that but in this Asia, in this fall asian swing you got people saying medvedev is the best player in the world it's like okay he's the best player this week he lost him at all twice in a row in august in september if if zverev wins next week he's the best player in the world that week like let's let's be realistic here Okay. Yeah.
0: What I want to talk about here is <laughs> how it took the rise of Bianca Andrescu to have folks really appreciate Naomi Osaka. I've seen mm, a, indeed a turn, a tidal rising turn of shift, however you want to call that, mm. to Naomi's side. Not that people are hating on Bianca, but she's no longer the upstart. She's no longer the one who is out here... Chopping down your faves. She's had her moment. She's been away a little bit, had a little bit of strife. And now she's coming back to prove to you again her pedigree.
1: Right. That she has the range. And I think what you're seeing now is a lot of Serena fans are looking at, they're surveying the WTA landscape and saying, oh, well, if it's between Bianca and Naomi, we're going to pick Naomi. It's not that bad. (laughs) You know, (laughs) right? We're we're
0: over it now. Because, A lot of the suspicion of Naomi and the critiques of her were Serena-related. Right. right? Especially when you had that 2018 U.S. Open final. And I think the last 12 months have gone a long way toward uh, quelling those concerns. I should hope so. Like, what more would you need? The Rogers Cup match, Mm -hmm. the U.S. Open happening again. We got through that with no issue. Like, Naomi has been nothing but gracious towards Serena when she would have been absolutely justified to
1: To be in her feelings at least. Yeah.
0: So like I'm that that's one positive development for me that can probably only be undercut should Naomi come whoop up Serena kinda whoop ass <laughs> in right. some big match next year. But I'm I'm happy to have them coexist at the top and have people not
1: bickering anymore. But in this match, this Osaka Andreescu match Andreescu was really pounding the hell out of the ball for almost the first half. I mean, the match itself was really exciting. The first set, Bianca goes up 5-1. Naomi gets back. Still, Bianca wins the first set 7-5. But as the second set goes on, you see the improvements in Naomi's game. The defense, the patience, just allowing herself to stay in points and assert her power it's it's really cool to watch. And like both of these women have so much talent. Bianca has so much versatility and obviously a lot of just grit. You know, I don't want to reduce her game to that because she has basically every shot in the book, but she has like blood and guts
0: and great like world-class visualization. Her visualization game is are you unfleek? Are you being sarcastic? Unfleet? on Un, unfleek? What unfleek. Is it? Unfleek. Oh yes, wow. that, that was a moment.
1: Yeah, a Freudian slip perhaps. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was of the opinion that for the betterment of Bianca and the, the women's game that Naomi needed to win that match. Mm. I think it was a it was a leveler that match. It was bringing things back to equilibrium and I think and I don't mean this in a, a snarky, petty negative way I do think that Bianca needed to remember what it was like to lose Mm -hmm. that that is something that she can only benefit from because she played a superb match came back from Mm -hmm. winning the U.S. Open went and did all her media obligations and was able to come back from that and put her best foot forward again like that's that's no small feat Mm -hmm. we see all the time folks struggle with that and so she comes to Beijing and she's faced with playing Naomi Osaka in this match against this woman who is one half the other half of the would-be rivalry right Right. and she brings her game and Naomi brings her game and it's a wonderful thing to watch
1: I'm just happy that we saw a match of this quality because it was super super hyped right Mm -hmm. like these two women they could be the number one and number two players for years to come we don't know if it's going to happen but it's in the realm of possibility right so i like to see that they match up well and they both fought
0: here's the thing folks are saying this is going to be the rivalry that's going to define and carry the wta tour post serena williams we've seen many like, would-be rivalries come that. and go and what we see them play five times because of injury not making it deep into the same tournaments Hell, when this draw came out and when, as it was progressing toward this would-be quarterfinal, everybody knew, like, wow, this is, this is a huge moment should these two women play. Mm-hmm. But there's no guarantee. Right. There, A lot has to happen before they can even play in the quarterfinal of this one tournament, let alone to then extrapolate toward the next five years and say these two women are going to do it. The next Bianca, the next Naomi could be lurking in Australia in January. Mm-hmm. You it, never it know. It could
1: be Amanda Anisimova, who know like it could be Corey Goff, I have no idea, or the... some person whose name we don't even know yet. Exactly. And so a
0: lot of things have to fall into place for this to really happen and it got me thinking, is it something that we really absolutely need? Obviously the answer to whether or not it would be good for women's tennis is yes. If Naomi Osaka mm. and Bianca Andreescu play each other 10 times a year, In high-stakes tournaments this is gonna drum up a lot of interest and support for the WTA that's a fact but does the WTA tour need it and what I struggle with is the the undercurrent of that means that the product right now needs something and it's not good enough and it's something that I, I struggle with because I think What's going on right now on the WTA Tour is fantastic. We have so many players, young and old, the perfect blend of young and old, winning and doing well, older players putting the hard yards in to get back in the game, Venus coming and trying and trying. She did not do well this Asian swing. Sam Stozer making a final, Petkovic making a semifinal. Literally anybody can do it on the WTA mm. Tour. And that's inspiring. It's amazing to me. To have two women be tasked with dominating the tour a la Martina and Chrissy, I don't know that that's a good thing for the WTA tour long term.
1: I just, I just mm. don't. The way I see it is that that's not really our job. Like, there are people who get paid to market and promote this sport. They're the ones who have to worry about what the next great rivalry is and if that's important to them. Our job is just to watch and enjoy. It just doesn't take up very much mental real estate for me. Trying to predict, is this going to be a great rivalry? Is this person going to be the dominant player? I'm just going to roll with it. Because I I don't have to build this board in the future. Like, that's not my job. Okay, so this portion of the episode is going to be
0: rapid fire. Because we're trying to get through this as quickly as possible. To have <laughs> this not be a super long episode. Right.
1: And not affect the quality. Yeah,
0: so let's be efficient, smart, snarky, witty, to the point, and get it done.
1: Okay, wow.
0: Comebacks. Kim Kleisters, we haven't covered this. Crazy, we haven't covered this on the mm. episode.
1: Talk, you know, things rarely surprise me in tennis anymore. <laughs> this absolutely floored me. This was me. wild. I thought it was April Fools. Like I didn't know what day it was. Yeah. I I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I was
0: in bed, I woke up, and one of the first videos I saw was this, and I watched this rollout, this video, and I was like, well, what, what is this? Like, you only do this if you're coming back. Like, this This is, mm-hmm. why is this happening? But this, this can't be real. It must be like some kind of joke.
1: Right. You know, I've gotten fooled early in the morning just when I wake up, girl. You're not going to trick me again. And she's like, you know what?
0: I played my exhibition against Venus this year. I see y'all out here not doing the things that need to be done. <laughs> And I'm out here and I'm going to do it because I'm Kim Clijsters.
1: Kim Clijsters surveyed the field and was like, yeah, I can beat her. I can beat her. I can beat her. I can beat her. Because he's like, oh, Bianca Andreescu just won the US Open. She looks like she plays like me. It's the
0: Chris Everett effect. Chris Everett is out here in this commentary booth and she's watching these matches and she's like, that never happened in my day. I would never do that. Mm -hmm. That would never happen to me. So I can not imagine that Kim Clijsters is watching these matches and she's like, What? on earth is going on i simply must i simply must return oh
1: my god she uh she's not as old as you might think she was super young when she retired the first time what 23 or something like that? 20 in her mid 20s she was super young when she retired the second time uh-huh she's had three children in that stretch she's got a homestead with pigs and dogs and it seems like they have a wonderful life
0: just a year or two ago we got this great story about Svetlana Kuznetsova interacting with her pig right
1: <laughs> staying over at Kim's estate or whatever um but she's she's felt the itch and she said like I'm gonna play a limited schedule but I think my kids are old enough now that they can travel and it won't be too taxing on the family and... she's already
0: still around the game right and I get it. You have all these players playing well into their 30s. And isn't this the great aspect of the current state of women's professional sport? The landscape has changed. It'll be one of the greatest legacies of the Williams sisters. Specifically Serena, as much as people mock her for, you know, as a mother. Hashtag this mama. Yeah, it's a positive. It's a net positive. You can have both. Right. As a professional tennis player. And,
1: you know, just so you don't get mad, we know she's not the first and no. she's not the only. Margaret, Margaret Court Ford. and Yvonne Gulagong mm-hmm. won majors after they had children. A Ann Fraser Price. We'll um, get to her in a right. bit. Right. Um, Alison Felix. Mm-hmm. I mean, women who've had children are doing incredible things in sport now.
0: But just in our lifetimes as. Avid tennis watchers. We know that the lifespan of a tennis player was very short. Yes. You got to 27 and 28 and you're like, oh my God, the opportunities, they are fleeting. Uh And now Alison Risk is top 20 for the first time as a 29-year-old. Right. It's just totally different. And what I would caution folks is to not have the highest of expectations for Kim in her comeback. What she says, and I take her at face value, she she just wants to do it.
1: Right. She knows she's got a lot of work to do on fitness, but she feels that her strokes are still there. Or maybe she just
0: wants to do it to show her kids what mama did when she Mm. was in her heyday. And whether it be top 150, top 100, top 50, back in the top 10, winning a slam, who knows? Every step of the way, like this is all just bonus and gravy for her and should only be viewed as an encouraging thing for women in how they plan their lives and careers going forward,
1: it's inspirational. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Kim was one of my faves back then, so I support it. Um, Despite one, beating
0: both Williams sisters. Well, you didn't give a fuck about Venus back then. Well, but beating both Williams sisters at the US Open.
1: Yeah, but Serena had a pretty handy record over her. Mm-hmm. Tatiana Golovan has announced her, her uh, unretirement as well. And I was again surprised at how young she is. She's only 31. She hasn't played in many years. She retired in her early 20s with chronic injuries and this inflammatory disease of the spine. She won two titles, Slovenia and Amelia Island, and she reached five other finals in what turned out to be a very short career. And she won the 2004 mixed doubles title at Roland Garros with Richard Gasquet. She made her return yesterday in Luxembourg, playing
0: qualifying, losing to Kaya Yuvan in straight set, 6 mm. And while the score may not be that encouraging, go follow Tamani Cariel's timeline. He watched it, and he, he had uh, encouraging things to say. Oh, good. He said that uh, while she fell behind early, she did not look like she was out of place. Mm. That she looked like somebody who had been competing for a while. And... All signs point to this being something for her to build on. Welcome oh, back, awesome!
1: She and look, herself has had two children,
0: by the way. I look forward to everybody coming back. <laughs> Come back, everybody!
1: Well, except for one. Oh my god! <laughs> I think you know who. Was I'm she
0: formerly hyphenated?
1: Yes. <laughs> um, the Hopman Cup is going to return in 2021. We don't know where, we don't know when, how or why, but Dave Haggerty, the recently re-elected chief of the ITF, insists that Hopman Cup will be back. Good. That is good.
0: In not so good news, Danielle Collins has been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis.
1: Man. Much like Caroline Wozniacki. Yeah. So same diagnosis. What is it with these autoimmune diseases in women of this general age? It just sucks. Collins, uh, you know, she said it's almost a relief to have been diagnosed because now she knows how to fight it. She said she is encouraged and she she wants to, you know, continue her career and fight. She was conspicuously
0: absent from a lot of the hard court swing this year. She was not in Cincinnati. We we're hoping to maybe speak to her. And uh, not much was really known. And then she resurfaced again at the U.S. Open. And she's been back subsequent to that. So I assume that this was when all this was going down.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, she did beat Venus Williams a few weeks ago. Thank you mm-hmm. for that reminder.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but like you said, she said it was a relief. And that was Venus's reaction to, to finally getting a diagnosis right. of Sjogren's Syndrome. Because your body is betraying you in these ways that you cannot explain why. And nobody can tell you why. And once you are able to know what it is, then you can make plans to move forward. And uh, Caroline as well, she had a a decent result in Beijing, and she's talking about planning for next year as well, so good for her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You don't want to talk about this, but I want to talk about this. This resurfaced on my timeline this past week, and it was from 2015 when John Wertheim, in his 50 parting thoughts from the U.S. Open, kind of went off on Rafa Nadal. (laughs) And I'll never forget it because I thought it was at the time, if I were to believe the words that he was writing as a Nadal fan, kind of gloomy. It was so, it was so morose. It
1: was kind of like an obituary on Nadal's career.
0: And at the time, Nadal had just rolled out the Tommy Hilfiger campaign. One of the best underwear campaigns for any male athlete to ever have been issued, to be frank. (laughs) And he had participated in this a PR thing ahead of the U.S. Open where they did the strip tennis. He only got shirtless. Mm. He wasn't that salacious. But in this 50 parting thoughts, Wertheim was not very charitable toward Rafa. He said, The whole affair was weirdly depressing and it took a while, but I finally figured out why. It wasn't the Wisconsin-level cheese factor, or seeing Nadal, one of the all-time greats, reduced almost Kornikova-style, to a sex symbol, replete with a Cheshire Cat look at the end of the commercial. Uh, You're straight, you don't get it. (laughs) That was not meant for you, John. It wasn't knowing that Nadal, a simple guy with humility who'd rather eat a burger at a sports bar than go to a hip new restaurant, was out of place, surrounded by all these climbers. It was the message of resignation as it pertained to his career. The air is leaving this balloon, and I need to capitalize on these opportunities while I can.
1: (laughs) I remember at the time thinking it was a really cynical take by Wertheim standards. Like, at, I
0: was surprised how hard he went. At the time, Nadal had not made a quarterfinal at any of the four slams that year in right. 2015. Right. It was the worst year of his career.
1: Sure. But he, I mean, he had won the 2014 French Open.
0: Mm-hmm. He had not, he wasn't, it wasn't even 30 yet. But we've been so, we've been so force-fed yeah. this narrative that Nadal will be done by a certain time because of the the physicality of his game.
1: Mm-hmm. Man, have we? I mean, have
0: we and him been proven wrong?
1: Clearly, hindsight is twenty twenty. But and many it, of us at the time read that and it rang false because it didn't seem like Nadal was the kind of player who would just resign himself to. Well, I guess I can't play anymore. Mm-hmm. It wasn't
0: just worth When he was asked about it in the subsequent mailbag, he said, well, yeah, I've been getting roasted for this a lot. But here's a response I got from a viewer, a listener who kind of felt the same Mm, thing. And I can see how folks felt that way because it was jarring to see these kinds of results from Nadal. And also, not just this whole, this resignation business was a bit overstated, but it had more to do with the doubt that Mm. Nadal had in his game. Right. He had serious doubt Mm -hmm. at that time and uh it's not it's not really fair to john to be putting him on putting him on blast like this on the podcast so it's not so much uh, a denigration of him as it is maybe a word to the wise to maybe keep these prognostications to a minimum when it comes to burying people before they're good and damn well ready
1: maybe i mean we could always go back and listen to old episodes of ours and see what terrible predictions we made.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure we had really gloomy things to say about Nadal too at some point, but it was the tethering of the campaign, the underwear campaign, yes. to the decline in his game as some kind of, wow, well, wow, this is the end.
1: That's what I found very cynical. Yeah. And the idea that he had been reduced to a sex symbol as if he hadn't been before. He had done, like, salacious underwear ads before that. The Armani one, he's been talking about his famous ads. The jeans, the Shakira video, like, he had been a sex symbol for many years. So it surprised me at the time that I read it, because I was reading Wortham religiously. And
0: also, the campaign was so well done. Yeah, I remember we went to
1: Macy's in New York that year, and there was, like, a wall of figure underwear. This,
0: (laughs) This PR stunt with the strip tennis was a bit much. (laughs) <laughs> but by and large, the, the figure campaign was a big success. It wasn't cheesy. It was sexy. Mm. You know, yeah. <laughs> it did what it was supposed to do. Rafa <laughs> knew what he was doing. He made those coins. And like he's done his entire career, his dedication to his career has been foremost. We are a multitude of things. You can be sexy and a Grand Slam champion and still do the business mm. on and off the court. That's all. It just It's something that stood out to me <laughs> this past week.
1: You may know that Andrea Petkovic is uh, an aspiring writer. After her tennis career, this is something that she really wants to get into. And it turns out she is already a sports writer, and a pretty good one at that.
0: Her essay for racket magazine Tennis vs. Tennis was recognized among the best American sports writing of 2019, alongside Chloe cooper Jones's GQ story on Del Potro.
1: Yeah, if, if you haven't read either of those,
0: definitely seek those out. Umpire you're gonna make fun of me, Gianluigi Moscarella. Gianluigi. Uh, oh, umpire Gianluigi Moscarella. Yes, the, the last name was right. The, yeah. the, did that sound okay? Yeah. He's been suspended by the ATP tour after being caught making inappropriate remarks to a young ball girl and coaching a player. He's a gold badge umpire, in a match between Enrico Della Valle and Pedro Sosa at the Florence Challenger Moscarella told Sosa, Dear Pedro, come on, stay focused, please. You should be 6-1-6-1. You lost 45 break points. And now we have accusations flying that Moscarella bet on the
1: match. (laughs) I mean, those are unfounded. But when you behave like that as an umpire, that's the kind of thing it's going to elicit.
0: But even worse was the fact that he called the 16-year-old ball girl very sexy and wanted to know does she feel hot physically
1: or emotionally. (laughs) man like was this guy drunk imagine like going off the rails so completely during a match you have a lot of people saying oh he's italian this is just how they talk it's like no 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 it's not
0: this is how they talk it's like this is why i'm not surprised but it's also trash
1: well no there are a lot of people excusing it because this is just something we have to understand it is how many years into the me too movement people still don't understand power imbalances that's like a big thing here you know the umpire is the boss of the court he is making a teenage girl feel uncomfortable she's 16 years by old making sexually suggestive comments. asking if she right. feels
0: very sexy i do he know he is clearly the person yes.
1: in control here it's ridiculous to sort of brush this aside.
0: This is a workplace. A- exactly. You are harassing a minor
1: sexually and even worse, in a workplace. she's not even getting paid. No. <laughs> so, it's beyond right. all the pales. So he was dismissed from the tournament. And the ATP has launched, launched an investigation. But they're running short on umpires right now. They fired that other guy for doing an interview. And this guy, I mean, it looks like he'll probably be fired as well.
0: He should. Like, this is untenable. You cannot hold this position after you well, do this. Why? I mean... Because think about it. This is the first time it was brought to light. I guarantee you this has happened, mm. and maybe even worse, many times before. Right. That is the story of the Me Too movement, right? You have one issue that's brought to light, and it starts just flooding through the
1: gate. Mm. But also what he was saying to Souza, trying to encourage him and sort of, like, shame him for losing all these breakpoints... That calls into question your integrity as an umpire. And that really is paramount. Like, that's that's the the biggest kind of competency of your role. Mm-hmm. You have to have integrity, right? There are
0: no defenses to be made <laughs> right. for this umpire. It is untenable in every respect.
1: Mm. Oh, so this is interesting to me. We've been talking a lot about prize money on both tours. It's been a huge issue with the ATP Players Council this year and previous years. The New York Times got an exclusive here. Christopher Clary wrote the story, A big group of ATP and WTA players, led by Vasek Pospisil, have engaged a law firm, which sent a letter to all four Grand Slam tournaments on August 20th, arguing that players need a bigger proportion of tournament revenue, and they want a place at the negotiating table. So this was done outside of the traditional avenues, outside of the ATP and WTA players' councils, which is very interesting to me. It could indicate a few things. The fact that so many players were willing to sign this outside of the normal structures might mean that the tour's leadership are not in support of it. It could also mean that the players don't have confidence in the structures that are in place. So Sloan Stevens was interviewed as a kind of a representative of the WTA side of things. And she's fully in support of it. She said a majority of top 100 players have signed this letter. Pospisil says around 70 to 80 of the top 100 men have signed. Roger and Rafa did not, Hmm. which is not surprising. They recently joined the council. Roger Federer has inherent conflicts of interest in in any of these things. He has close ties with Craig Tiley of Tennis Australia with the USTA, who are both part owners of Cup which is Federer's event, so it's not surprising that he's, you know, not made himself part of this this letter. But uh, their goal, Pospisil's stated goal at least, is to increase the number of players able to make a living off tennis and to increase the proportion of revenue from tournaments that is going to player prize money. It's a really, it's a really interesting time in tennis. I don't know what's going to come of this, but uh, it seems like a big deal.
0: And it's only just begun. Yeah. For all the talk of ATP, in in particular, ATP Council drama in 2019, this is something that's shaping up to be a lot more fruitful and positive for both tours in 2020, mm-hmm. possibly.
1: Right. I mean, Pospisil has said openly that he feels that the ATP Players Council has these inherent conflicts of interest built into the way the organization is structured that prevents this sort of momentous change. Mm-hmm. Still, he has his blind spots with the sure. whole Gimelstab thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. We can't have it all. Right. And at the time, he f- clearly felt that Gimelstab was the way to effect change.
0: I'm very interested to see Sloane Stevens in this role on the WTA Players Council moving forward.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because she's somebody who is well-positioned, well-established, well-moneyed, many bags secured to be able to... <laughs> Put aside, you know, self-interest and do the work
1: in the vein that many great women have done before her. Mm. She hasn't started her term on the WTA Players' Council yet, but she has gone on the record with this whole movement, right? Like engaging this law firm on behalf of players, independent of the Players' Councils, the ATP and WTA Tours are not involved in this action. So I I do wonder, like, like, man, she has guts. to to step onto the Players' Council after doing this, right? Like, you wonder what the governing bodies feel about it.
0: Well, you kind of know how they feel about it. They don't see tennis as akin to other professional leagues, specifically in North America, like the NBA, NFL, or or what have you. They have pushed back, well, they being the the National Federation.
1: So the Grand Slams have not officially responded. They have not come to the table. But we Uh, know their position. Right. Specifically,
0: the USTA, they say, well, we know that their official prize money output is 14% of the the gross from the U.S. Open Mm. that they put back into the players' pockets. Now, that other 86%, they say that's necessary and it needs to go to development of tennis within the United States. And that's why they're different from the NBA and the NFL and the NHL. Because they have other things to consider. But who is making that decision? Who is deciding that 14% is enough? Why can't it be 25?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Who is making money on an administration level? You know, we don't know the efficiency with which the USTA is being run. Whether or not somebody needs to be paid
1: $3 million to do this or that, blah, blah, blah. We... Well, uh, they're doing more than the other slams. The US Open is the only one that's releasing their balance sheet.
0: Yes, let's you give know. them that kudos. But my point remains, like there is a lot that can come to light from this issue being pressed, is my point. Because folks are out here struggling. Outside the top 50, they are struggling. And that's an issue that needs to be addressed. The race to Shenzhen, could we see
1: Serena Williams? <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, she may very well qualify. So either Burtons or Bencic have to make the Moscow final for Serena not to qualify. Currently, she's in the number eight position. Already qualified, in this order, are Barty, Pliskova, Osaka, Halep, Andreescu, Kvitova, and Svitolina and Serena are next. And the, the 7, seven and eight. 8. So at this point, only Bencic or Bertens are able to generate enough points to spoil. Moscow is really the last tournament that's going to be counted, that they're playing in, and one of them has to make the final. Regardless, Serena's not going. Like, there's no way. She's already scheduled an event, a speaking event the same week that that's going on uh so congrats to one or both
0: (laughs) (laughs) something i discovered last night i was on twitter and soledad o'brien follows a lot of people like in the hundreds of thousands okay she follows me on twitter when i first saw that notification Soledad o'brien follows you thought you had made it like what not made it but like this is so weird one but also like maybe she's just a big tennis fan but it was like okay she just follows a lot of folks, <laughs> hoping you follow them back, right? Mm. So she was retweeted onto my timeline, and I clicked on her profile, and I saw, followed by Mary Pierce. And that signaled as weird to me, because from what I know of Mary Pierce being a super born-again Christian and politicking conservatively, I didn't really think that necessarily she aligned with Soledad O'Brien's politics. But then I was like, well, wow, this this could be... Amazing. You know, maybe Mary Pierce is one of these born again Christians who are still somehow, you know, politically left leaning. Alas, that was not the case. She follows something like 180 people on Twitter. I scrolled through all of them, and a lot of them were innocuous, a lot of them former players. And then you got to the entire Trump immediate oh and extended God. family like the
1: whole family tree. the whole family
0: <laughs> if there were a trump dog he would have been followed <laughs> and then i don't know maybe this is something that i should have done research on i'm assuming mary pierce spent some time in florida because she's followed rick scott and rick
1: scott's wife mm. and his wife and mike pence and mike Pence's wife and you know and joseph Marcolo. who was that
0: Joseph Mercola is a famous or infamous internet doctor. He's like a face. A what? He's like his own WebMD. Mm-hmm. I, I know, I've, I've heard of him for years, and he is an absolute proponent of anti-vaxxing. Oh, he's lobbied Lord. for it. Like a lot of his stuff, he's been sent cease and desist stuff from the fda like this is all (laughs) hogwash bullshit (laughs) like mercola is a symbol of fake news essentially
1: oh i was blissfully unaware (laughs) fake medical news Mm -hmm. you know she does keep her her tweets and her likes pretty clean though like it's pretty close to the best she's not liking all this crazy stuff like john isner and tennis sangren do yeah It's pretty much only tennis.
0: The point is, for a brief moment there, I had hope, because I really enjoyed Mary Mary Pierce growing up.
1: I mean, Mary Pierce was weird, like, from the jump. (laughs) Right? She was. (laughs) Even before she was problematic. She is weird. (laughs) We wanted to end with a shout-out to two incredible female athletes, GOAT candidates, Ann Fraser-Price and Simone Biles. Yes. In yes. What, I mean, in Sabone's case, the goat status is locked up. She's still a it's kid. Un, unquestioned. She's still a kid. But Shelly Ann Fraser Price had her cute little baby, came back to sprinting, and she is again the fastest woman in the world.
0: Running 1070, 1071? Shelly Ann Fraser Price.
1: 11 years after she ran in the 2008.
0: Ship- she burst onto the scene. She's won back-to-back Olympic gold medals in the 100 meters. She's won four 100-meter gold medals in the World Championships. She's done this now after coming back from having her cute little baby boy. This is... This is top stuff.
1: Right? I feel like when, when she won the golds in Beijing, people probably thought she was a flash in the pan. She won again... She's won all these world titles. And it's like she keeps reminding people that she's legit. She is one of the greatest who has ever run. No,
0: that's not true. What? At this point, she is the greatest Oh, you think female so? sprinter in the 100 meters. Well, we're not going to talk that about this world. We're not going to talk about those records. Has ever seen those records that this world has ever seen.
1: I mean, I agree,
0: but Florence Griffith Joyner, may she rest in peace. Marion Jones, may she rest in bankruptcy court.
1: Stop. I watched that 30 for 30. I felt really bad for her.
0: Okay. (laughs) That is one way to look at it. Personally, for me, I think of all the glory that was snatched from Jamaican athletes Mm. at the 2000 Olympics. But that's just me. (laughs) There's Carmelita Jetta at 1064. I won't say anything that might get me hit with a lawsuit on that. On that one. But as far as I'm concerned, they're the Jamaican woman. There is the yeah. long lineage, the legacy of Jamaican woman.
1: And it will continue. Elaine Thompson was kind of injured during this world championship. an Achilles injury. But she is still really the heir apparent. Uh, you win the 100 meters and the 200 meters at
0: the same Olympics. Mm-hmm. You are a legend. Shout out to Alison Felix. You know, not always been my cup of tea. She's been exceptional and really, really seriously good at multiple events. Can't take that away from her. Never been my fave. Hmm. Like, there's there's just this... Well,
1: because she's competing against yeah, Jamaicans. There's so.
0: this thing with Jamaican and American sprinters that if you're a fan of one, especially if you're a Jamaican sprinting fan, like, you don't trust any of those American sprinters. You just don't. <laughs> you don't like them. You don't trust them. You're not here for them. But, you know, I've let Alison Felix into my heart a little bit. And
1: she's friends with Serena. Yeah. You know, she can stay. Now, Simone Biles won the all-around... I mean, she basically won everything at the World Gymnastics Championships this week. 25 medals in the World Championships. Or 24. I mean, who can keep count? (laughs) The most decorated gymnast, man or woman, in history. And it's just like, where where does it end? Which is
0: difficult to say or imagine because she keeps getting visually and categorically Mm -hmm. and measurably... Better right.
1: the margin of her victory in the all around was the biggest she's ever had.
0: She keeps adding things soon every rotation, every event, every routine will
1: be named for bias. <laughs> well, we're gonna end it there. Thanks for listening.
0: Do a better job ending the episode, please <laughs> Try again.
1: okay yeah that was that was terrible.
0: Has it her second goal? No. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John.
1: And I'm James, at Elliot
0: JMR. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is at The Body Serve on Twitter, Instagram. You can find us everywhere on the internets. Please give us a review. Those do us wonders in raising the profile of the podcast. And like we said, our last US Open review episode was our most downloaded yet, and that's in no small part to all y'all. And we thank you, and we appreciate you.
1: Mm-hmm. And thank you for the kind comments about our historical episode. I was so worried that it was going to be boring, but I'm glad that some of you found it interesting.
0: Listen, I edited most of it, and I was like, "Oh my god, like this is this is <laughs> but you not." You thought it was boring. <laughs> I thought it was ter- not terrible, but I thought we had missed a mark. No, like we had I... we had shot this sh- we had shot the shot too high. And oh. it fell
1: a little bit further
0: than we expected.
1: I listened to it and I was I was actually happy with it, which I rarely am. I think maybe
0: it's a function of the actual editing process. Mm. It's never good for how you really think about the right. whole thing. Because I'm, I'm taking out all the really, really bad stuff. Like the ticks and the pauses and you don't mm. get a, a sense of the flow. Which, when you're talking about historical stuff, is okay, pretty well, important.
1: Well, they don't need to know that. Okay, fine. Thanks for listening. We'll see you, uh, I don't know, a week or two. Till next time.